What's going on, guys? And welcome back to another episode of the 50 Plus One Football Show, your place for all things Premier League and Bundesliga. I'm Billy, and with me is a man who looks almost as good in Lederhosen as Harry Kane did at the weekend. It's Lewis. Uh, good, good Oktoberfest references there. That's right, guys. We are back on the airwaves after a little bit longer of a break than we had anticipated. Um, but sometimes, you know, life just gets in the way. But for that, we are coming back with some juicy topics. And we're going to start off in the Bundesliga with Borussia Dortmund, who don't seem to be so much Empire Strikes Back as Empire doesn't do anything after the season they had previously. Then we will also be looking at the resurrection of VfB Stuttgart. They just seem to keep on winning and right now are gunning for European places. Then we'll move over to the Premier League where we look at the woes of both United and Chelsea, both teams not having the start to the season they had wanted slash most experts say they should have had. And then we'll also have a look at Fulham's ticket pricing. That seems to be just plain atrocious. All that and more right after this. So the Empire Strikes Back is what it should have been for Borussia Dortmund. You know, you come so close to winning the Bundesliga, then, you know, it's so unbelievable how, you know, they gave away the title last season. And then this season, it just, other teams are just running away with it or, you know, taking over the mantle that Dortmund seemed to or should have been having this season. I don't know. What do you think the... What do you think the main issue at Dortmund right now is and why they're not performing, you know, to the extent that I think most experts would have agree- agreed they should be? It's going to sound a bit weird to begin with, but bear with me. I have my my reasonings for this. It's this holding on to the past or holding on to players, club legends, don't get me wrong, that probably should have gone in the summer, if not the summer before, for one reason. So I'm talking Marco Royce. I, I know he got the winner at the weekend. And I'm not, I'm not crazy, but and Matt Hummels as well. As well as I'm not entirely convinced by Edin Terzic as the manager. Yes, he did fantastically well when he took over from Lucien Favre, but it's just not happening. There were signs when they were close to winning the league, that it wasn't all well. You know, they had a lot of help from Bayern not being great either. And I don't know, to rely on someone like Matt Hummels when you've got people like Nicolas Sula, Schlotterbeck, you would have expected Hummels to have slipped away by now. You know, that's why they brought those players in. Yeah, I mean, it's... It's hard to look at. I mean, I know Freiburg is now already two weeks old, two weeks old, basically. But it was a narrow win, and they gave away a one 0 lead. You know, ended up being down two one before they could really, you know, hit back. And it, it almost took the red card to Freiburg for them to come back at that point. And it was, you know, anything but convincing. And as you've said, Mats Hummels is kind of their guarantee for stability at this point, which. You know, with Schlotterbeck, you would argue that he hasn't really had a good run in form since probably the first half of the season 
during his first Dortmund season, really. So, you know, the one before the World Cup, because, you know, he had a, an atrocious World Cup. And then after that kind of just seemed to never really get back to his pre-World Cup form. Yeah, well, that's that's difficult because every German player had an atrocious World Cup. This is true. This is true. But I mean, Schlotterbeck especially, you know, if you take the Japan game, for instance. Yeah, he really did struggle. But credit where it's due to the older players. You know, Marco Royce bailing them out against Wolfsburg. Hummel scoring the winner against Freiburg. But he scored two goals against Freiburg, to be fair. So they're still good players. But I think if they're going to progress, they need to... It sounds really harsh, but sever ties with them and of course the other big issue is that they haven't replaced Haaland, Bellingham and I'd argue Sancho still Yeah, you know normally we associate them with okay they they sell a good player for a good price but then they replace them and eventually that was going to end and I think it's happened now Yeah, okay Daniel Marlin has sort of upped his game a little bit but not not to a level that's that's good enough. Adiemi struggling. I don't know what's going on with Mukoko, but there's just something not right with the recruitment now at Dortmund. You know, they're, they're buying in stopgap players. Are you telling me they want to afford yeah. Nicholas Fulkrug? Yeah, I mean, Fulkrug was a weird buy because everyone was like, they already have Halea. And the Fukul transfer almost suggests either they have no confidence in Halea, and that's why they brought in another number nine to duel with him, and they also have no confidence in Mukoku that he could, you know, become that striker and get more playing time. Because now with now for Mukoku, the situation's very bleak. You you know, you've got Halea and Fukulg ahead of you, both strikers who are experienced, they've shown and proven themselves in multiple seasons and in multiple arenas. How is Mukoku supposed to, at age 18, 19, 20, when he's supposed to you know, become that breakthrough player, make that breakthrough if he's got those players in front of him? Exactly. You almost need that injury crisis like they had when they signed Bellingham. Yeah, that led to him being, you know, they had no option but to play him. He took his chance, and now look at him. So yeah, yeah, because he's an incredibly talented young player, but they're so far off at this season. You know, they went from last year almost winning the league, collapsed on the last day, to this season. I think it's going to be a genuine struggle for them to get Champions League football. Yeah, I mean, we both said at the in the in the first episode of the season that we were expecting Dortmund to maybe finish fourth, but definitely in terms of what they had brought in over the summer, um, in terms of what you know the other teams have brought in over the summer, Leipzig and Leverkusen especially were ahead of Dortmund in terms of the team they have and and the players they've got. It's. I don't know how much of it is Edin Terzic's fault because he's definitely managed to do the right or get the right balance in that team before. But it's, it's, 
at some point you just have to look at you know what constellation you've got at Dortmund and right now it just doesn't seem to be clicking like you said whatsoever well should we leave a team where it isn't clicking and talk about a team where everything seems to be going right for them at the moment you said it in the intro the resurrection of Stuttgart the surprise package so far this season I and mean, yeah and it could all be down to one striker. Well, I don't know if it's down to one striker, but, you know, bear with me. It's it's the last time I think we saw Stuttgart anywhere near Champions League places was probably the last time they won the league, which was 2007. And, you know, take a trip down memory lane with me. You had the likes of Mario Gomez, who had just bro- burst onto the scene. Sami Kadira, who had just burst onto the scene, Timo Hildebrand in goal. These were the guys who had won Stuttgart the league. And now you've got, I'd say, not these superstars, if you will, but then again, Gomez and Kadira weren't really superstars at the time, which, you know, you have to say as well. But with the exception of, let's say, the slip-up in Leipzig, Stuttgart have won every game and they've conceded max one goal. So if you, you know, you just take the 5-1 thumping against Leipzig, just, you know, kind of take that out of the whole mix. You've got 5-0 against uh, Bochum. you got a 5-0 against Freiburg. Freiburg are not that bad. They're playing Europa League, mind you. Mainz win a 3-1. Darmstadt, obviously, uh, being you know the newly promoted team, also get a three-one killing. And of those, you know, eleven, just doing some quick maths here, 14, 15 goals. Cedo Gurassi has scored ten, and that's the mental thing. So you think last season we were giving props to Fulkrug and Kunku for sharing the top goal scorer award with 16 goals yeah you know my man's had five matches and has already you know more than half of those goals in five matches yeah that's that's it's it's insane uh sorry to all the stuttgart fans my maths was incorrect uh it's 17 goals that stuttgart have scored but still that is almost two-thirds of the goals scored by one man and yeah, like you said, he's only six goals off the tally needed to become the you know top goal scorer. It's pretty insane how well Stuttgart seemed to be working, and also the fact that you know we, you know, when we looked at Alex Nübel going to Stuttgart, we were like, well, that's a downfall. How much of a downfall is it really? I mean. Say like save for the uh five one, we're always taking this game as an anomaly almost for Stuttgart. Yeah, they've scored they've conceded seven goals in five games. But if you take that game out, it's only two goals in five games for Nube. I think a lot of people would have expected Stuttgart to have conceded more by this point. Oh, definitely. But it's a credit to the coach, Sebastian Hurnus, for getting yeah. them playing like this. You know, you look at the the forward options, Dennis Undab who, you know, never really worked for him at Brighton. Uh, Jamie Leveling was at Greuther Furt when they came up. 
and and he didn't work out at, at Union either last season. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you've got Silas who has his moments. He's a good player, but the main man is Gurasi. And like you said, that he could end up being a record transfer out of Stuttgart if he keeps this up for the whole season and not just like the first five, six matches. And that's the crazy thing as well. Gilasi was supposed to be out the door already after his performances last season. And um, just for all of you eagle-eyed listeners, or eagle-eared almost, there was one expert by the name of Lothar Mateus who suggested Gilasi would be a guy for Bayern if they can't get Kane. And most people laughed at him. Well, Kane, as good as he started at Bayern, still only has, I say only in quotation marks, seven goals to his name. And that's including his insane performance against Bochum this past weekend. And Gilesi probably would have cost a fraction. Okay, yeah. But if we're talking goal involvements, Kane also has 10. He's got three assists as well. So it's going to be a really good battle for that golden boot. It's not a golden boot in Germany. The uh, the cannon on a plank of wood. Come on, that's better than a golden boot. You have a cannon. It is pretty fucking sick. I'll give you that. Right. But you've got Gurasi, Harry Kane, and Victor Boniface, a certain someone's pick for uh, the one to watch this season, who, incidentally... Uh, has won the first Player of the Month award in the Bundesliga. And that leads us on to another topic. Actually, no, it doesn't. Let's talk about Kane quickly. Because he has the Bayern record for most goals in his first five Bundesliga matches. Yeah, I mean, to be fair, Bochum kind of made it easy for Bayern. Uh, anyone who has Kane in their kickbase team also was able to hop from one foot to the other because the man by himself scored a solid 542 points. Um, you know, just thought I'd throw that in there. Um, anyways, Kane at Bayern, he's needed no time to acclimate to the new league, to new surroundings, whatever. He's worked from the first minute onwards. Um, that's what you expect from a hundred million euro signing plus add-ons. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's what you expect, but, you know, Lewandowski only had four goals in the equivalent time when he joined Bayern. Uh, and Gerd Muller, I mean, Gerd Muller had 14, but, I mean, the man was a freak. And he also played in a time at the beginning where there was still a questionable offside rule. And I also believe at a lower level. I'm fairly certain. Fairly certain. When I say lower level, I mean like a lower standard of football. Yeah, I was about to say, because Bayern were promoted in 1964. They weren't one of the main... They weren't one of the founding members of the Bundesliga in 1963, but they were... They did manage to go in in 1964. So that's Harry Kane. But like I said, Victor Boniface did win Player of the Month. Which leads me on to a bugbear of mine and of Lewis's. 
So if uh, Seru Garassi has 10 goals. And an assist. And an assist. Harry Kane has seven goals and three assists. Uh, Victor Boniface has six goals, which is still a good return, but has won player of the month. And I'll tell you why he's won player of the month. It's the same reason some players win the Premier League player of the month, Serie A player of the month. Uh, it's because they're voted for by fans who play... It's not FIFA anymore, is it? Uh, EAFC. Oh, that just doesn't roll off the tongue, does it? It doesn't. It's like people who call Twitter X. I'm still calling it Twitter. But because it's fan-voted, fans will tend to vote for the player who would get the best in-game card. Now, this is a a league-wide conspiracy, and it's also my uh, answer to the question, why has Kevin De Bruyne never won Player of the Month? Yeah, I mean, there's always a nominee who is quicker. Yeah, I mean, it's the same thing with the Ballon d'Or, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, that's just a popularity contest. Before anyone loses their head, the Ballon d'Or, I know, is voted for by journalists as well and by people who might have a little bit more say than the average fan who plays EAFC. I'm sorry, I'm not saying it. It's for me, it's forever and it forever will be FIFA. but yeah, it's not. I know it's a little bit more than just the average FIFA fan. But you know, when you had, for instance, twenty twenty one Argentine journalists who didn't know how much Lewandowski had really scored in that season, and they were still voting for Messi, it just goes down to the fact that the so called experts who vote on these awards, they really never have the full picture or are not really giving an unbiased opinion when it should be you know it's like it's like someone who's trying to tell me that uh manchester city right now because of the success they've had in the last few years should be a top three club in the world in you know terms of total history uh what they've done as a club um you know so on and so forth like City just won their first Champions League title. That doesn't automatically put them in the top three clubs of all time. Exactly. And if we're going off performances, then it should have been uh, Garassi. Yeah. That won. Or, you know, possibly someone like uh, Xavi Simmons. Exactly. Like it, someone who, you know, it's. It's the same thing as why Ballon d'Or winners are always the people who have the most goal involvement, so the most goals scored. Um, goalkeepers and defenders are never really going to get one, you know, save for Fabio Cannavaro and uh, Lev Yashin. But, you know, let's face it, Lev Yashin, uh, most people won't have even, you know, really heard of because it was in the 60s that he won this. Um, and obviously Cannavaro, you know, he was playing at a time when Ronaldo and Messi were still bursting onto the scene really and weren't at the top of their game. So I mean no trying not trying to discredit Cannavaro by no means by any means but it, it's it's still you know a different time and now you know it's it's more of the same really. So with when you say Xavi Simmons because he doesn't end up on the score sheet as the goal scorer as much but he does you know the the work behind the goal scorer so to speak so he feeds the goal scorers he 
he provides the assists, he provides the passes in the into the forward third. It's that type of thing that kind of gets overlooked. And yeah, I think Xavi Simmons should have had a decent shot had it not been for the fact that Girassi is scoring 10 goals in a Stuttgart team who most people would have pegged to be mid-table at best. Exactly. And like I say, talking about Yashin, it's why there's a separate award for goalkeepers because no goalkeeper will ever win the Ballon d'Or again. It's just not going to happen anymore with the way that the voting works. I was but, about to say, if 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 Naya had maybe not been playing at the same time as a Cristiano Ronaldo and a Lionel Messi, he probably would have won in 2014. He's the but, only goalkeeper apart from Yashin to make it into the top three. Very possible. Very, very possible. So let us know, how would you have decided the Player of the Month awards? Should they be found voted or should they be, like Man of the Match awards, decided by industry professionals and ex-pros? But now... Let's move over to the Premier League. Well, you mentioned it in the intro. The woes, we'll start with Manchester United because it's been a less than positive start to the season. Let's go with that. Yeah. <laughs> that that's that's very nicely put. Exactly. We're, we're being nice here. The progress they made last season hasn't really been built upon. No, it really has been a, a tremendous amount of injuries for Eric Ten Hag's side, but it does speak volumes about the team when the emergency loan signing Sergio Reggion uh, has been touted by some people as being the best player so far this season. Jesus Christ. Uh, but it's not it's not just the on-field issues. There are off-the-field issues as well, particularly Jaden Sancho. So he didn't travel for the Arsenal game. Um, when asked about that, Ten Hag said it's because uh, his training effort was, was very low. He wasn't good enough in training. Uh, Sancho then clapped back with a, with a, a tweet and a post saying that he disputes that he doesn't feel that's fair um he's now since been banished he cannot use any first team facilities he's not allowed to eat with the first team uh his english teammates according to espn like maguire mount rashford Shaw, have all said look just apologize that's that's all the manager wants is for you to say sorry for going public with it you know just apologise and you can you can get back your career back on track. The PFA have offered to come in and help broker peace, which I feel is a bit over the top when all you're being asked to do is simply apologise for someone, you know, for apologise for reacting to someone saying you're not doing well enough at your job, for which yeah, you get I'm... paid £350,000 a week. I mean, yeah, that's a crazy bit. Um I think there's one anecdote that comes back to me when uh, the Rio Ferdinand had basically talked about on some podcast, I forget the name, uh, but he basically said, you know, Roy Keane, uh, he had a bust up with Sir Alex Ferguson um, because, you know, Roy Keane had gone on to, you know, MUTV or whatever and criticized a lot of, uh, a lot of United players um, after, after a loss. And, 
then there was a bust up because Sir Alex Ferguson had said, you know, no one criticizes the team publicly other than me as the manager. No other, you know, no player has the right to do so. And then Roy Keane, they, he had a bust up. Um, and after, you know, the bust up where Rio Ferdinand said a lot of players were like, Jesus Christ, because it was, you know, in the dressing room in front of the whole team. Um, you know, Keane leaves and then Sir Alex Ferguson said that man is never playing for Manchester United again. And, you know, lo and behold, December of that season, Keane was gone. Um, similar thing with Ten Hag almost. Ten Hag wants players to know that, you know, the club and the team are above everything else. And he is not going to shy away from making an, an example of players, whether it be a Cristiano Ronaldo, whether it be a Jaden Sancho, whether it be Harry Maguire, who was captain um, before he came in. Um, it's one of those things. I don't know how much uh, Ten Hag may be going overboard with this. I don't think there's a, a sense of overboard because he's, he's still allowed to train. It's not like he's asking him to do a half-hour sit-down interview, you know, begging to come back. He's asking for an apology to the staff and the players, not not just personally to the manager, to the staff and the players, uh, and then that's it. And uh, Gary Neville and Roy Keane, they have the overlap. Uh, on Sky, yeah, and they and they were talking about it, and Roy Keane was like, "Look, I've been in dressing rooms, and someone's done something, made a mistake. They've come in, they've apologised. It's forgotten. We move on." If he comes back, the only people that are going to harp on about this are a media, yeah. And at the moment, the general consensus is that a move away in January is the best option. No. Exactly. I would argue no. Because one, who's looking at his efforts and his attitude and going, (laughs) I want a bit of that. (laughs) And two, wherever he goes, given well the attitude that he has shown and the performances he's put in, he's had a handful of good performances, but they haven't been good enough so far it's going to be a step down. It's not going to be a, a top club that wants Jaden Sancho. Now he'd be lucky to get a move to Aston Villa right now. Well, there was some chatter about Dortmund wanting him back on loan, but the only yeah. stumbling block being his wages. And uh, there was just something in build yesterday. I know it's build, but it's come from the from people talking to the Dortmund bosses. When Sancho was at Dortmund, discipline was always a concern. He often came late to training or flew away for two to three days after a match. The biggest problem, according to Dortmund bosses, is that Sancho sleeps too little and sits at the console and plays until the early hours of the morning. So, last night at the time of recording, United played Crystal Palace at home in the Carabao Cup. The early hours of Monday morning, there were screenshots of him playing FIFA at like 3am. My man, you are not helping yourself. You're not helping your cause. And if someone was to pay me £350,000 a week, I'd run to training at five o'clock in the morning with no shoes on. I was about to say, you'd see me in bed at 8pm. You wouldn't 
you wouldn't be able to get a drop of alcohol into my veins for about three months straight until the Christmas holidays. Exactly. I'll be tucked up in bed before match of the day. Yeah. And it's, it's a problem that a lot of young players have where they break through so quickly. There's no structure around them. Yeah. Obviously you do have them where it's, where it's different. Obviously Harlan's got some structure around him. He's got good people around him. Bellingham's got good people around him as well. But if you're talking about going over the top, going over the top, it sounds over the top. I don't think it would be the worst thing. Make him live in digs like youth players do. Make him go and stay with a family in Manchester who basically get paid by the club to make sure he goes to bed and make sure he's eating properly and make sure that he's doing X, Y, and Z. Like they do when they're 14, 15. Maybe he just needs to have, you know, a, an almost back to the roots type of experience where, you know, he, he sat down. He's not allowed to drive his 500k Lamborghini or whatever he has to training. He's not, you know, supposed to be staying in his mansion. You know, he's given, let's have it an Opel or as you would say in the UK, a, a Vauxhall Astra. Um, and he has to go live with a family who basically makes sure that he is getting to bed at i don't know 10 p.m and he's just going to training he eats his meals that's all he does maybe he needs to be humbled a little a little bit but yeah getting the screenshots taken of your handle at three o'clock in the morning you know if that's what you want to do go become a professional esports athlete and i say athlete in quotation marks because you cannot tell me those are athletes who are just sitting on the console 12 hours a day i'm sorry that's just not on that's, that's like that's like trying to tell me that you know i mean i'm sorry but at the end of the day darts professionals are more athletes than the than the console guys like sorry anyways um if you can uh, bet anyway. on it if you can bet on it it's a sport anyway well at that at that rate then chess is a sport and you make money betting on it Probably can. Brandon definitely will bet on chess. 100%. If he bets on the Malaysian second division, then he will bet on chess. There we go then. So let us know what you would do if you were Eric Ten Hag and you had the similar situation with Jaden Sancho. Would you just bring him back in because you're slightly short on options? Would you stick to your guns and hold out and wait for that apology because of the disrespect shown to the coaching staff and his teammates? Or are you on Sancho's side? Do you think it's unfair that he was criticised for his tra uh, training performances and he should be allowed to come straight back? Well, you say you say Sancho, but the other winger who is equally equally as expensive is also not playing and is also not in the squad, and that's Anthony. Yeah, now. We have to be incredibly careful with yeah, this yeah. Uh, because of the legal issues. But he has been accused uh, originally of three previous partners uh, of like domestic abuse and coercive behaviour. One of those has since dropped the charges. Uh, he's currently, there were pictures of him this morning, uh, Wednesday at time of recording, flying back to England presumably to uh, deny those charges, to face those charges. 
But yeah, when you lose one winger for an extended period of time because of legal issues like that, it was okay. Well, now this is a chance for Sancho to step in and and stake claim to that position. The complete opposite has happened. And if Anthony is found guilty of any of those charges, then it should be completely different to the way the Greenwood situation was handled. You don't leak that you're going to bring him back and then when the public outcry makes you realise, oh no, shit, we've done the wrong thing. You then ship him out on loan. You cut ties and you move on. I mean, it's pretty telling of the situation in Manchester United when you've got two players with a combined transfer fee of $190 million, not even on the bench or playing badly, but completely banned and away from first-team activities. The only team who have a worse return on, on investment than, you know, spunking $190 million on Sancho and Anthony is probably Chelsea Football Club. That is a wonderful segue into the woes of Chelsea Football Club because such optimism, if you can call it optimism after last season, such expectation, such vast amounts of money spent, and it really is not happening. I mean, really is not happening is what you would probably say of what Manchester United had at the start of the season. This is a step below that. Yes, United have the problems within the dressing room and whatnot and having to suspend players, but United have managed to rack up at least three wins this season, which is something, you know, that cannot be said for Chelsea Football Club. Obviously, it starts off with a 1-1 against Liverpool. Mo, you know, we talked about this in the first episode as well. You know, it's kind of the the classic 1-1 because in the last six matches or so, it's always been draws between Chelsea and Liverpool. 3-1 loss to West Ham. Ouch. They do manage a 3-0 win against Luton Town, but Luton Town, let's be real, they are newly promoted. If you're spunking over a billion in transfers and over the course of you know just three transfer windows you should be beating Luton Town 3-0 a 1-0 loss to Nottingham Forest a 0-0 draw with Bournemouth and now another 1-0 loss to Aston Villa Jesus H Christ sitting 14th with five points from six matches and a negative one goal difference that is not what you would be expecting what anyone anyone should be expecting of a team that spent over a billion pounds in transfers since the summer of 2022. Well, it's one of those, we've said it before. They're not buying to a theme. They're not buying to a system. They're buying because they can, which is not the way to go about it. Okay. Yeah. Fine. Buy a player who may not fit a particular system once or twice not a billion pounds worth of player because i don't get the signing of cole palmer no no one does at all don't get the signing of cole palmer at all 
Nicholas Jackson, more yellow cards than goals this season. Five yellow cards, one goal. So, and you look at the bench. I, okay, I know they have injuries. Okay, I know that. But is this the bench of a team that spent a billion pounds under Todd Bowley? Mark Kukurea. Okay. Cole, who, who incidentally is frustrated that he's not playing and wants to leave. <laughs> Mate, you're not playing because you're... You're not playing well. Cole Palmer. Okay, it's too early to judge that move, but I still don't understand it. Armando Broya did well at Southampton. Not sure he's top six, but I mean, he did Armando have that injury. Bro yeah, but Armando Broya is probably, you know, he's he's supposed to be, you know, this up-and-coming talent at 22. Yeah, he has shown flashes of that talent in previous seasons, but... You can't be pinning your striking hopes on that. But, I mean, just, just looking at the squad, you'd think that a squad that's had a billion, a billion pounds of investment, over a billion, there is not one name there that I would be like, oh, my Jesus Christ, that is a smack-you-in-the-face player. You know, we're talking the likes of a Harry Kane or a Haaland or a Bellingham or uh, Vinicius Jr. or someone like that. This is their striking options, right? And I'm reading of their full squad list. I'm very well aware that there are some players here who are either youth products or fringe players as well. But you've got Raheem Sterling, who, let's be real, probably had his best years at Man City. Nani Madueke, you know, he could be there in a few years. Nicholas Jackson, we've already ripped him to shreds a little bit. Christopher Nkunku is probably the only player in the striking position who I would be like, oh, yeah, that is a very, very good player. But he's out injured. Um, Armando Broja, we just discussed. David Washington. Uh, um, Romeo Lavia, Moises Caicedo, Connor Gallagher in midfield, Cole Palmer. Uh, Ugo Chukwu. Ugo Chukwu, there we go. Um, Mikhailo Mudrik. Uh, well, sorry, sorry to interrupt. Did you see uh, Poch's comments from yesterday? No, I did not. So uh, Poch was—they were talking about Mikhailo Mudrik, and he was like, oh, "You know, we we do uh, crossbar challenge," and he said, "I don't want to play with you anymore because you always beat me." Incidentally, he did then beat Poch in a crossbar challenge. But if your manager's beating a, a hundred million euro player in crossbar challenge, it's not a well, good look. We we both know that Mikhailo Modric is not anywhere near worth the hundred million that Chelsea spent on him. I'm sorry, Enzo Fernandez is not worth the hundred and five million spent on him either. They bought into a player who had a good World Cup, and if you look at the last few players who were bought because they had a good World Cup, why don't you just look at where they ended up? James Rodriguez left Europe before age thirty. Yeah, okay, but James Rodriguez did well initially. Because yeah, he, but didn't, he didn't move. It didn't go downhill till midway through Real Madrid. Yeah, but I mean, if you know, there's there's not one defender in here. You know, Thiago Silva's past it. You just have to say he used to be world class, and the rest of them just you can't tell me that one one of those players is good. You can really put in the world class position or in the world class category. Who is in their goalkeeper goalkeeping uh, lineup right now? You know, Robert Sanchez. Yeah, he was good for Brighton, but no one expected him to move to Chelsea. Chelsea then 
really needed him after you know Kepa said, "Oh, Real Madrid, I'll have that." I mean, uh, yeah, the other two are uh, is it Dorde Pet- Petrovic and Lucas Bergstrom. Yeah. So they're banking on Robert Sanchez. You never know; one of the others could come good if Sanchez was to get injured. But yeah, look, I mean, it's... there are a lot of problems at Chelsea. Yeah, but it's just it's just the investments at Chelsea are being made into players where I feel like Todd Bowley doesn't even know who the players are that he's buying. Okay, well, let me put it this way. Let me ask you this question. Does Poch last a season? Oh, I mean, I think Pochettino is one of those managers who will resign of his own accord if he realizes the problems at this club are getting too big for him to handle or for any manager at that point to handle. I've, I swear, you could put Pep Guardiola into that club and he would probably want to leave after max a season. Well, there we go. We will have to get our Chelsea expert back on at some point to talk through the problems at Chelsea, but that is an episode for a future day. And before we finish, let's just talk about the price of football ever so quickly because the uh, the price list for Fulham's game against Manchester United at Craven Cottage has recently gone viral. And there's two very different experiences uh, here. One from an English perspective and one from Lewis who will offer the German perspective. But let me just give you these price ranges ever so quickly. So for an adult, for Manchester United at home, the... Lowest price for an individual ticket. I'm not suggesting a family ticket because you have to buy the child's ticket at the same time. But so in yeah. the Hammer in the Hammersmith area, £67 is the lowest ticket price for an adult. And if you want to sit in the riverside, the the most expensive is 160. So 67 to 160 for an adult. For a child, the lowest is 31, and the highest is, is 80. <laughs> So if you are, let's say you're a, a parent taking one child to the to the football, okay, and you don't have a season ticket, that's the best part of £100 before you've even paid for travel or paid for parking or paid for drink or, you know, other concessions in the stadium before you've got yeah. a programme or something like that. It is disgusting. I mean, I we already know how much the ticket pricing in Germany uh, compares to the UK. Just to put it in pers- into perspective, I mean, I love the you know the fact that Craven Cottage is one of those you know football heritage grounds almost that you know they still been still has more or less the same build as it did what fifty. 60 years ago. Um, that being said, that ground is nowhere near a high-tech construction like, you know, the Tottenham Hotspur Stadium or the new Bernabeu or the new or the Alianza Arena, who, which is incidentally almost 20 years old, but still probably one of the most or more modern stadiums that you can get in Europe. Um, doesn't hold nearly as many fans uh and still 
for an adult in what or watching a Bayern match, safe standing area costs 15 euros for an adult. Just to put it into perspective, you know, I if if I'm watching from you know say the nosebleed section, which is the top topmost tier in the Allianz Arena, I'll still only be paying around forty. It only starts going when I go. You know, that's category uh, five. Category, um, you know, four. You're you're going to, you're, you you know, you then up going around eighty or sixty, eighty, one hundred. But 100 euros is getting you, 80 to 100 euros is getting you more or less in the bottommost tier, very close to the to the pitch. I, I know it's an expensive thing. Okay, I, I get that. I'm not saying it should be like. Yeah, but that's that. That this is this is the thing, right? That's no disrespect. FC, and we're talking about Bayern München on the other end. These are two different football clubs who are charging very different ticket prices. Yeah, ex- exactly. There, there has, there should be a cap at some point, but it's how a lot of clubs make most of their money. Which is game. bad because they're making the money by pricing fans out of the stadium. Exactly, there will be fans of Fulham or of of Manchester United or Southampton or whoever that cannot afford to pay those prices. I mean, season ticket prices is a whole other conversation for another time because the Arsenal prices are disgusting. I was about to say, Bayern with their cheapest season ticket have 120 euros on the on uh, on the receipt. So, And Arsenal's is pushing two grand. Exactly. But anyway, that's probably a good place to leave it on a slightly angry note this week. <laughs> hey, we're one of we're some of the fans who who don't want to be priced out of stadiums. So it, it is uh that's that's just the way it goes. But as always, don't forget to like, share, and subscribe to 50 plus one sports on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And make sure to check out the 50 plus one football show on Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, Amazon Podcasts, and Spotify. Thank you very much for listening, guys. Keep calm and love the beautiful game.